Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. I, I think Mike threw this out last week, asked people to throw some uh, words back that, you, that maybe describe what God is like, how you might say, if somebody said to you, what's God like? Some of the things you might say in response. And everything sounded really good and theologically on point, so well done, everyone. <laughs> everyone shut it out. Um, but I want to ask a question a little bit differently. If we, and that says, how can you know what God is like? We've just said God is invisible, and we'll park God revealing himself in Jesus for now. But what other things reveal God to us, and even God to those who don't believe in God? What sort of things out there are there that cause people to think, maybe there is a God, or I can see God in this? In creation. I grew up in South Wales, and I could look across at the Brecon Beacons, and just see something beautiful there the, the landscape where you go to different parts of the world or different parts of the country and then I, I studied physiotherapy as a, as a degree and I learned about the intricacies of the body and uh, the intricacies of the hand we had a hand surgeon come to talk to us one time and my colleague turned to me at the end she said I'm not a Christian but when I learn about how intricate the hand is I think there really must be a God yeah. Yeah. creation yeah. design the intention the, the, the vastness of it, all of those things point to, the heavens declare yeah. the glory of God. So creation, anything else? Obi-Wan for the good one, I was like, yeah. <laughs> that's why he said it so quickly, creation. Did somebody else say creation for the back? Or, yeah, it's you, or yeah, creation. So you definitely get a, a bonus point. Anything else? What else might point to God for us? Sorry? Us. That's a really good point, and that's kind of where I want to finish. So thank you. Spoiler 100% that God should be seen in his church, in his people. We should have the resemblance of the Father because we're his children. That's great. That's fantastic. Anything else? What about conscience? That, that in, in the world, one way or another, people believe that something is right and something is wrong. Even if they're not quite sure what parameters those are on. They just know that's not right. And something has to be done about it. That's good. That's bad. And that line is blurred. And that line is messed with all the time. But still within every person is this sense of right and wrong. Our consciences, because we're made in the image of God, although tainted, still reveal something about God and his nature. So creation and our conscience. What about experience? Have you ever had a friend who's like, I've had so many coincidences lately. These things have happened and, and I don't understand why and I'm wondering maybe the big guy upstairs is looking out for me. And I might use phrases like that or the universe, you know, is doing something for me. But, but there's something about experience and, and in that, the history of mankind is that we are we're created to worship. It's evident throughout history. No matter where you go in the world, there are, there's evidences of people trying to honour, worship, bring sacrifices, do something to someone or something bigger or greater than they are. And that continues. Now it's celebrities, maybe, but you know, now it's, I don't know, uh, I can't even think of any celebrities, but because um, we're talking about Jesus. So, and of course, the Bible. Uh, the Bible starts to uh, point us towards God. And, and then, if you turn in your Bibles then to, G, to John 1, because this verse in John 1 is really important. This brings us back on point to what I'd like us to, what, what we're looking at together in this series of the attributes of God seen in Jesus Christ. But John 1, 17 and 18, this is a beautiful verse. And John was like, John was the person who knew Jesus best. Yeah. John was Jesus' cousin. 
So John, uh, James and John were Jesus' cousins, as well as John the Baptist. So John would have grown up with Jesus. John then worked, if you like, as a disciple alongside Jesus for three years. And out of those disciples, the twelve, there were three. And out of the three, John was the closest friend to Jesus. John is the one to whom Jesus entrusts his mother. If anybody's got the dirt on you, it's your mum. But he then looked after Mary, and Mary lived with John. And and, and John is convinced of this. Jesus is God. And he says this, For the law was given through Moses. It says John 1, 17. The law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness, or God's grace and truth, came through who? Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, he's talking about Jesus here, the unique one who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Hebrews 1, if you just turn towards the back of your Bibles, we'll just quickly go back to Hebrews 1, verse 3. Again, just to sort of reinforce this point. It's not just John's opinions. Whoever wrote Hebrews also believes this. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And then Mike sort of read something similar to this in Colossians earlier. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Jesus is God and came as a man so that we could understand what God is like, so that we could begin to grasp a little bit about what God is like. What is God like? Well, what did Jesus do? He healed people. Mike talked last, last week about touching the leper. Reaching out to the outcast and the untouchable, Jesus puts his hand on him and, and is, is close to him. He feeds crowds. Children loved to be near him. Um, religious people really didn't like him. People who were sinners and stuck and knew that they were in sin wanted to be with him. Uh, Zacchaeus was intrigued about him. He, he, he exuded God's love and God's goodness. He exuded grace and he exuded truth. He never apologized for himself. He held his shoulders back, his head up, and yet he was humble and he was pure of heart and he was meek. And all of those things begin to describe to us just what God is like. And I find that incredible. Because sometimes we think about God and it's kind of like up there somewhere. But, but then I look at Jesus and I think everybody wanted Jesus in their home. Yeah. We're having a party. Who should we have around? Well, of course Jesus. You know, and all the children wanted to be with him. And, and sometimes we imagine Jesus being a bit, oh, children bless. You know, all the way to the cross. Would you invite him to your party? Would you bring your children to him? And what I want to talk about today is that Jesus exuded joy. And God is a God of joy. Yes. God is a God of gladness. Yeah. And God is a God of humor. Yeah. Okay? God is awesome. Yeah. God is sovereign. God is holy. God is mighty. God is the ancient. Of, he's all powerful. But he's also a God of joy. Go back to, if you, I don't know, are you still in Hebrews 1? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's good, isn't it? If you go to Hebrews 1 verse 9, because this describes Jesus, taken from Psalm 45, and the book of Hebrews, the writers of the Hebrews are saying, don't go back to old Jewish ways. Jesus is the best thing that's happened to everyone, let alone the Jews. So just keep believing in him. Don't go back to Moses. Don't go back to angels. Don't go back to priests. 
and temples and sacrifices. It's all fulfilled in Jesus, and he's the best, so keep him as number one. That's basically what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. And he says here in Hebrews 1 verse 9, uh, this is referring to Jesus, and therefore it's referring to God. You love justice and hate evil, therefore our God, your God, has anointed you, pouring out the oil of religiousness on you. (laughs) Pouring out the joy of holier than thou on you. No. Pouring out the oil of joy on you. More than anyone else. And that word joy is like, it's like joy on steroids. It's extreme joy. It is ultimate gladness. And, And then I was thinking, of course he was anointed with joy because We've only just had Christmas. Doesn't that feel like ages ago, Christmas? But the Christmas story is full of joy. The introduction of this little baby boy fills everybody around him with joy. The wise men turn up and they meet Jesus and they're full of joy. She's not even born yet. Mary is pregnant. Elizabeth is more pregnant. Mary walks in and says, hi Elizabeth. As soon as she says it, what happens to her? The baby in Elizabeth's womb. Jumps for joy! John the Baptist does a backflip and a double flick-flack. With joy. Mary, when she realises what's happening, she sings the Magnificent. It's a song of joy. When the angels come and visit the shepherds, they sing, I bring good news of great joy to all the world. Why would Jesus be anything less than completely joyful? When his introduction was full of joy and then all of a sudden there's a damp squib. And he's just really... No, that'd be awful. It's a really bad, that's a bad impression. I know, I know you're laughing at that, but... <laughs> and, and God is a God who laughs. God, uh, mainly quite ironically, I think irony is, is in God likes irony, then the Psalms are littered with God laughing. And generally, he's laughing at rulers and kings and people who are like shaking their fists and gnashing their teeth and blaspheming and trying to go against God's plans. And it's like, it's like you're out having a walk and you nearly step on an ant and it turns and it starts shaking one of its legs at you as if they're somehow threatening you. And you just look down and you're oh, that's kind of what God is doing. There's this sense of, and? What's going to happen now? Why am I threatened? God laughs, and, and we heard the story of, of Samuel being caught. I think God was enjoying that story, because every time he was waking Eli up, poor Eli's trying to sleep in. <laughs> and then there's a similar story in Samuel, where the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, is taken by the Philistines, Israel's mortal enemy, and it's put in the temple of Dagon, and Dagon was the god of the Philistines. He was like a fish god with gills, and, and he stood in this temple, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant in, and they close the doors, and they go home, they go to bed, they come back the next day, they open the doors, and Dagon's statue is lying face down. I think God had a bit of fun with that. I think God was enjoying the, this, this irony. And then they stand Dagon back up and they brush the floor and they mop him down a little bit and they close the doors and they go back to bed and they come back the next day. Now Dagon's face down, his head separated from his body, his arms are off and they're like, right, we're getting rid of God. <laughs> and everything represents this God because he's bigger than our God. And God is enjoying this, this, this interaction, I believe, that's happening. God loves us. And when he looks at us, he, he's filled with joy. And I believe we make him laugh. I definitely do. There's no question about it. Some of the things I do, some of the things I say, sometimes he doesn't laugh. A lot of the times he does, okay? Mm -hmm. And when Jesus is talking and ministering, 
Jesus tells stories and parables, and they, and they are wonderful, and they're, they're mysteries, and they're full of truth. They're, they're kind of truth bombs. They're, they're, they're fullness of truth presented in a single story. But he also uses hyperbole. So he over-exaggerates things to, to bring a bit of humor. Well, you know, the, the speck in the eye and the log in your eye thing. And you kind of you read that, and sometimes you just flick over it. But actually, to people listening at the time, that was a really funny way of expressing something. And it's the thought of, like, I've got a massive log in my eye, and Luke's got a tiny speck. And it's like for slapstick films, you know, where somebody's moving around with a log of wood or a plank of wood. And I'm turning to Luke to try and get it out, and I'm just smacking him in the head with the log that's sticking out of my eye while I'm trying to pull the speck out of his. Or there he talks about the, the, the whole thing of, on Christmas morning, your kids have been asking you all, all, uh, all December for a, for a fish. And what do you give them? You know, you, they're there, you close your eyes, and they close their eyes thinking you're going to get a fish, and God puts a snake in your hands. And he's like, of course God's not like that. I asked for an egg, and God puts a scorpion in your hands. And this, Jesus is using humour, he's using an illustration, of, there's no way that could happen. But sometimes we read that so piously and seriously, like... But, but God is just saying, I'm having a bit, bit of fun with you. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're straining at gnats. And then you're swallowing the camel. It's like you, you're, you're struggling over the little tiny minutiae of the law. And yet you're missing the big things. And in, in fact, in Aramaic, that was wordplay. One was gambler, the other was galma. So a gnat and a camel. And Jesus was actually using wordplay as well as images to present something that was meant to be funny. That really just broke the religious seriousness of everything with humour. And, and one of the challenges we have when we read our Bibles is like when somebody sends you an email, loses all of its tact, and you don't get the same sense of communication from somebody as when you're with them. But I would love to, when, at some point in, in, in eternity, I want to watch back the Gospels in, in like real time. So I want to see, it's a bit like The Chosen, again, on steroids, okay? So it's that, whereas this is actually what happens. I have no problem with The Chosen. <laughs> But to watch, to watch it with it all taking place and, and to understand the language and to understand the cleverness and the wit. And I believe Jesus was full of it. Yeah. I believe Jesus was very witty. He was very smart. Of course he was smart. He understood things. He knew things that were coming before they came. And, and he enjoyed ministering in that context. And I just want to say, that's what God wants us. He wants us to be joyful. Yeah. Of course, sometimes things are serious. Of course, there are challenges. And we're not belittling anything. But but that God wants us to be anointed with joy, just like Jesus, because God is a God of joy. Yeah. And I just would like to read a story from, from the end of, of Luke's Gospel. And I, I heard this read last Sunday in Stony Stanton, and I caught some of the humour in it. Now, this might only be, this only tickles me, or I only appreciate this, and I understand that. And thank you for sitting and listening to me talk. Um, but I just want to read this story that we may have read before, maybe the first time we're hearing it. But for me, there are things in here that just exemplify Jesus. I use this word reverently. Cheekiness. <laughs> just playfulness. Where, you know, humour can be used in a way where somebody is, is, is put down. God would never use that kind of humour. Okay? It's not about belittling somebody so that, uh, for a cheap laugh. But there are some things that just happen that are just funny and you can enjoy it. And you know how it's all going to end and it's going to end well. But in the process, you can have some fun with it. And I kind of think that's what's happening in this story. And one of the things I think, one of the reasons I think that is because Jesus has just died on the cross. He's gone down into Hades. He's taken the keys of sin and death. He's completely overthrown his enemies. He's led a train of captives out in glory. 
And now he's in his resurrected body. It's like you've done your exams, you've got your results, you've done really well, and now it's the summer. It's kind of, but like, times a billion, okay? There is no question in my mind, for Jesus' humanity, the cross and everything it brought weighed heavily on him. He was sweating beads of sweat that were beads of, of blood because of the pressure that he was under before the cross. The cross and what the suffering that he went through, none of us can ever possibly imagine. But I just, but I, I'd like to think that the other side of that, that moment in history, there was a lightness that came back to him yeah. and a joy and a joyfulness and therefore a playfulness that he now enjoyed as a result of his victory. He was enjoying his victory. Yeah. And, and I think this is what's happening here. Because people's eyes are about to be opened all over the place and he can't wait. But he's having a bit of fun before the light goes on, okay? And I think that happens a lot with me. He's having a lot of fun with me before the light goes on. <laughs> so Luke 24, verse 13, it says, uh, so Jesus, like I said, has just risen from the dead, but nobody else knows that apart from a few ladies. And we know that they didn't really respect the report of the women, more fool them, but that was how it was. And a couple of the disciples have been to the tomb. And now this is all happening. And the same day, Two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. Jesus just did one of his appearing acts. They didn't notice this, but I think he enjoyed it. Bing, there he is. He didn't run up behind them. He just appeared. Resurrection body, one of the benefits. But God kept them from recognising him. And, and this is Jesus first. I just imagine a bit of playfulness in this question. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? He knows exactly what they're talking about. They stopped short sadness written across their faces. And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there in the last few days. And he's going extra cheeky now. <laughs> what things? <laughs> He's having fun, Jesus asked. In my mind, he's having fun. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did, who, who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel this all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at the tomb early this morning and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and they'd seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see and sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. But then go as far as saying, but he's alive. <laughs> just that his body was gone. And then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe. All the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Now this is a teaching series I want to get my hands on. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And by this time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he were going on. He's having fun. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. And then he broke it and gave it to them. And as I read this part of the story, I was reminded, you know, when Jesus pretends like he's going on, he's not going on, is he? 
He knows exactly what's going to happen next. But I was reminded of the story in Mark 6, when Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and everybody's being sent home. And Jesus says, I'm going to dismiss the crowd. You guys, head across the other side of the lake. I'll see you in Bethesda. Bethsaida, sorry. So in the boat they get, and off they go. And Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. And then we know it's about 3 a.m. And what's happened to the disciples? They're in a storm on the lake, pulling with all their might at the oars. These kind of burly, experienced fishermen think they're going to die. And Jesus looks down from the mountain and thinks, I'll go and take a closer look. Okay. <laughs> so off he goes. And Jesus says, starts walking along the water towards them as if he's going to go past them. Exactly like the story in Emmaus. It looks like he's going to go on. And the disciple, and, and the disciples are like, Paul, we're going to die, Paul! Peter, pull harder! And Jesus is like... <laughs> <laughs> and they see Jesus and they think, it's a ghost! It was a storm, now it's a storm with a ghost. It's getting worse. And then in that moment, Jesus climbs into the boat and says, Peace. Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. And the storm stops. It's like this is happening again. The disciples are in a storm. They're in a storm of confusion. They're in a storm of disappointment. They're in a storm where the one they pinned all their hopes on is gone. And, and now there's all reports from different places. They're in this storm. And then all of a sudden, this Jesus starts walking past. And he's about to walk by, but they invite him in. And as he comes in... All of a sudden, things change. The storm stops. And he says this. He, said, he takes the bread. Um, and and uh, back here into, uh, where were we? They sat down to eat. Then, then he broke it and gave it to them. And as soon as he gave them the bread, what happens? Verse 31. Suddenly, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. Oh, come on. How crummy is that? It's like, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's gone. And so we find this amazing story of Jesus. I just think he's having fun with his disciples. But then, but then it, it's not at their expense because what, what, what is him being with them? What is the joy that he's brought, brought into them? All of a sudden, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they've just walked seven miles. This is the holy half marathon that we have in the New Testament. They've walked seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and now they're about to trot backwards. When Jesus was invited in, it was getting dark. It's probably about half seven at night. They've made bread. They've made food. Jesus is about to break it. It's probably about half eight, nine o'clock. Jesus then, they see it's him. He disappears, and they start to leg it back to Jerusalem at about 9, 9.30. And they've got seven miles to go. Didn't our hearts burn within us? And so they... They, they, within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 disciples and the others who were gathered with them who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Now, this, this bit here in our scriptures has a parallel in, in John 20, 19. So can you keep, keep a finger in, in Luke 24 for me? But if you would just flick to John 20 for a second, please. This is, the par this is a parallel moment. John 20. And uh, again, it's, the sun, it's that evening after Jesus had been resurrected. And I'm just going to read a little bit. It says, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Okay, go back to Luke 24 again. So that's the same meeting now that we've just joined. Guys from Emmaus have managed to get in to that room with a locked door. Everybody's scared about what's happened. They're very confused. These guys have come back with a good report. 
And so they sit with them, and the Lord has really risen. And then verse 35, the two men from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road, and how they recognized him as he was breaking bread. And just as they were telling about it, what happens? Jesus suddenly was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a... It's another ghost. Jesus is doing another ghost trick. <laughs> so not only has he appeared in a locked room, he's having fun with them. If, if Jesus didn't want to startle them, he'd be like knocking the door. And then they might come down and they say, oh, it's Jesus' angel. You know, like they do with Peter later on. But he doesn't. He appears in the room. He has fun with them. They think... It's a ghost. And Jesus, why are you so frightened? Again, it's that same thing that we see in the boat. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost. Because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I can do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. And they still there stood in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Jesus' joy is infectious. Jesus is anointed with joy and his joy is infectious. And then he asks them this question. Got anything in to eat? <laughs> and they give him a piece of broiled fish. And just picture this. Somebody's gone into the kitchen. Okay, his hands are still shaking, thinking he's seen a ghost. Now he knows it's Jesus, but he's like, he's bringing this bit of grilled fish to Jesus. And hands it to Jesus. And all, all, everybody in the room is looking at Jesus while Jesus just has a like, a little bite of fish. Your parents always said, never watch people eat. It's rude, isn't it? And they're all staring like that. Has it gone through him yet? Has it fallen out the bottom yet? And, and we have this, this beautiful picture of Jesus eating fish. So we have Jesus pretending to walk by. We have Jesus appearing to be a ghost, but not being a ghost. Always bringing peace. Always bringing joy. Now Jesus is eating fish. And I just want to finish with this little bit of the end of John's gospel. I think this is one of my favorite little... Images, pictures. Um, I think it's because I really like food. And I really love Jesus. And these two things are together in a beautiful way for me. And uh, being a man, barbecues as well, gravitate to them like a moth to a flame. And uh, Jesus has, has been resurrected and he's visited them. And yet there's still this process going on in the disciples of, of understanding what all this really means for them. And in this story in John 21, the... Simon Peter says, let's just go back to what we did before. Let's just go fishing. So he gets in his boat and they go out fishing and they have a terrible night fishing. They don't catch a bean, let alone a fish. And, um, and they caught nothing all night. And at dawn, Jesus is standing there on the beach. But the disciples couldn't see who he was. There it is again. There's this slightly hiding of, his, of who he is to them at this point. And I think this is again one of the benefits of a resurrection body. And he called out. What, did, what, does it, what does it say in your Bible, sorry, when it says he called out, verse 5 of John 21, what, what, what descriptions do we have? Children. Children. Friends. Friends. What was that, sorry? Friends. Friends. I've got fellows in mind. But actually a closer thing would be little boys. Is that a bit of fun? Little boys? <laughs> little boys? Have you, uh, have you caught any fish? He knows they haven't caught any fish. <laughs> He's having fun. He's enjoying this interaction. No, they replied. Throw your net out to the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. Or starboard, go starboard. So they did. And they caught a hole in the net that was so many fish in it. And now they're not pulling at oars, they're pulling at nets to try and bring this 
fishing and there's 153 fishing. As soon as Simon Peter starts to realise who it is, they're coming back to shore. He jumps out of the boat and he runs to Jesus. And they think they're bringing Jesus fish to cook and eat. But Jesus has already got the fish there waiting for them. Verse 9. And I just love this picture. Oh, and this is so powerful because this is Simon Peter about to meet Jesus at a charcoal fire. He just, not that long ago, been at a charcoal fire. And three times he denied him. And that smell is about to hit his nostrils. And it's going to take him back to a memory that he's not going to be happy with. But this is a place where Jesus has already made food for him. Where Jesus has already provided for him. Jesus is already about to meet him and, and put him back on his feet again. And ask him the question, do you really love me? It's going to restore Simon Peter right in this place. He's not going to put him down. He's not going to condemn him. And I believe he's full of joy in this moment, Jesus. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, the resurrected Lord and Saviour, who had conquered sin and death, is making breakfast for his friends. I just love that picture. Let there be no leader, church leader, who thinks they're too good to do things for their friends, for their church family. We're in this together. There's no hierarchy. Jesus isn't sitting on a throne that he's been... I mean, he could have made one. He was a good carpenter. You know, sitting on the beach waiting for them to bring the fish in and make it for him. And like, chop, chop, you know, let's have some breakfast. He's there waiting with food, with breakfast, ready to restore his friend, his brother. And he's there full of joy. And I just want to encourage us today and, and remind us today and, and just hopefully inspire us today that God is a God of joy. Yes. God is a God of gladness. God is a God of humour. And then there's a beautiful verse in Zephaniah 3 that I'd just like to finish with. And uh, as Marie rightly said at the beginning, this is how I believe we will reveal God to people around us. This is how Jesus, one of the ways that Jesus revealed um, God to those around him. And as I said, Emma did a brilliant job sharing on God's hesed, or Jesus and Jesus hesed, which Mike picked up in his kindness, faithfulness and kindness, these beautiful words that are wrapped up in this one word hesed. Um, but in Zephaniah 3, it says, uh, verse, verse 16, and uh, just an encouragement to us all that it's good to smile, it's good to have a spring in our step, it's good to laugh. It's good to not take ourselves too seriously. We take him seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. And it says, on that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, this is Zephaniah 3, uh, 16. Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty saviour. Just listen to these words. He will take delight in you with gladness. That's like double, isn't it? He'll take delight in you with gladness. And with his love... He will calm all your fears. Isn't that what Jesus does time and again with his disciples? And he will rejoice over you with joyful songs. That's our God. That's our God. And for us to know God is a God of joy. He's not somber. He's not dour. He's not having a downer. God is not waiting to get angry. God is waiting to smile. God is not waiting to, to shout. God is waiting to laugh. Because he's a God of joy and Jesus revealed the joy of his father's heart as he ministered and as he lived with his friends and all of the things that he would have gone through in his life. Time and again, he would have smiled easily, he would have laughed readily, he would have had fun and enjoyed everything that was going around him whenever he could. And I believe that's how he, as much as we can, 
That's how he wants us to live. And being anointed with joy means that there's something in us, a joy in us, that is sustained outside of what's happening around us. It's an internal that affects the external, not an external that affects the internal. And I know there are challenges, and I know there are times when we're not going to laugh, we're not going to smile, that's not appropriate. But whenever we have the opportunity to know that as we do, I believe we're expressing something of God's heart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine or make him smile upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. So Lord, I want to thank you for your Holy Spirit. And I thank you that living in the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would anoint us with your joy today. I pray that on Monday morning, when the alarm goes off, that you'd anoint us with joy. Lord, we ask that your joy would sustain us. We ask that your joy would energize us. I pray that your joy would bring healing where it's needed and restoration where it's needed. Lord, not just to us, but Lord, to those around us who desperately need a dose, Lord, of the joy of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive in how we share that and, and, and bring that to those around us. But Lord, let us be those who are always full of your joy. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are a joyful God. And we are so glad to be able to worship you, to honour you, and above all, Lord, to know you. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening. Um, Enjoy being together. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.